welcome to the New Stories Podcast. Well, hi, I'm Rodney Glasgow. I'm the head of school at Sandy Spring Friends School and really excited for this conversation with Bella, Russia, and Sarah about so many pieces of the learning and the curriculum and, and the way things are changing in some really great ways at a really challenging time in the country. And so I, I want to bring them in right away and I'm going to ask them each to introduce themselves, but through a particular question, which would be, tell me how you got here and we'll go. Bella first. Hi Rodney. So I'm currently the lower school learning specialist at Sandy Spring Friends School. How I started way back was with some formal schooling time in the classroom with preschoolers. Then I went to some informal education time at the Maryland Science Center where we focused a lot on science education for families of children birth to eight. And so an early childhood focus was emerging in my career. And then went on to get a master's degree in early childhood ed and took a break for parenting for a few unspecified years. And so that was definitely an important part of preparation for teaching here at Sandy Spring. And then my children started here and I followed them, which is the wisest thing to do. And so I taught first grade for a long time and now I'm really excited to be the learning specialist. Awesome. Russia, tell me how you got here. I've been with Sandy Spring Friends School. It's actually our third year. Sarah, you and I started together. So yeah. we're going into our third year. How exciting is that? I have been a, I've, I've worked for corporate America for a number of years before becoming a teacher. I was a senior technical writer for several corporations. Um, so writing was my thing. And so when I got bored with that, I really wanted to go into teaching. And so I've been an English teacher. I have been a college counselor. I've worked a lot with IB schools, with AP. I've been a head of school and ultimately the job that I enjoyed the most was the one that allowed me to work with both teachers and be in the classroom. And that was kind of the academic dean position. So when a position opened, I applied and, and here I am. Haven't looked back since. <laughs> and Sarah? Well, I started off in actually another private school in South Florida, and I was the head librarian there. And then I moved to Johns Hopkins University where I was the lead teaching and learning librarian. So for five years, I actually worked with different graduate level and doctoral level programs at the school on their in-person, hybrid, and virtual learning. I left there because I wanted to see people again. <laughs> I spent a lot of years just conversing with people over the phone and through things like Zoom. And I was like, no, I'm gonna see people. My daughter is school-aged, so I came to Sandy Spring and ended up virtual again. So apparently this is just like my, my life's destination. Um, but what drew me to Sandy Springs specifically was my job here is unique. We're one of the few schools to combine library and educational technology as a department. So I am the director of the inquiry guides here. Well, thank you all for making the time and, and maybe just jump right in. You know, the, the big question of the day in our independent schools right now, especially in Maryland is virtual, in-person or hybrid. And we've obviously made our decision to go virtual, right, considering all the factors. And the reaction has been for some great and for others, how are you going to make virtual as good as when our kids are on the campus? And I say, ask Bella, Russia, and Sarah. So, so what have you been telling folks about, about how is it going to be different but as good, right? How is this virtual education really going to serve our students? I think what we all thought of, I'm going to presume, is how to keep the elements of Sandy Spring that are really important to us and important for our students and families 
while adjusting to the crisis at hand, right? We did that in the spring and we knew that throughout the summer we had to pivot in a different way, a more intentional, more grounded, more research-based way. And so that's what we've been spending the summer trying to do. I think also that what makes me so happy about Sandy Springs mode of attack is that we are not attempting to replicate a school day because while virtual learning at such a massive scale is new to most of us and certainly new to us as a country, virtual learning isn't new. So I love that we have really looked at programs that work, the research that is out there from these long standing virtual programs, and we're teaching our faculty the best ways to teach our students in a virtual environment. And we're not just trying to replicate, you know, a school day online, which we know research-wise fails. No, absolutely. I think I agree with uh, with Sarah and Bella. We learned a lot from the spring um, in, in that experiment, what I like to call emergency teaching. Um, and our teachers really, they threw everything. They did everything. They worked really hard. I'm really proud of them. But we learned a lot from that experience. One of the first things we learned is that when you are planning for face-to-face -face and then have to pivot and teach virtually, that that transition time is really hard. Like that transitioning from face-to-face -to, -face to virtual is really, really hard. And so one of the things we really tried to do all summer is to have our teachers, because we didn't know whether we were going to open virtually or not. We didn't know if it was going to be virtual, if it was going to be hybrid, if it was going to be face-to-face and having to prepare a number of teachers, a lot of teachers for any one of those scenarios, we really had to think smartly. And so one of the things that we, we learned this summer and from our experience this spring is that if you plan for 100% virtual, then you can really pivot much easily to face-to-face -to -face or the hybrid because just the way that you design virtually doesn't take as much toll on the teachers and on the students. Things I was really excited about some of this work is I actually don't think that us going virtually is actually moving us away from our strategic goals as a school. It's moving us along. But I did think that if it wasn't for COVID, the work work we were trying to accomplish this last year would have taken us at least five, six, seven, ten years, right? It depends how slow we wanted to go. And we had to jam that into a year, which means, yes, our teachers have worked really hard this summer and we have to protect them from burnout and all that. But I also think this allows the school to continue on our strategic plan and really propels us forward very quickly in a direction that all of us want to go in. Because one of the things that's happening is a revamping and revitalizing of the curriculum, both for online and in person through this one schoolhouse. I'd love for y'all to talk more about what are some of the things one schoolhouse is particularly helping our teachers to do or enhance in preparation for this fall? So one of the things when Schoolhouse was really emphasizing, you know, how do we design courses and then build those courses and then deliver those courses in a virtual or in a hybrid environment? It was really interesting to have them take those three things and separate them. Those are three different steps that we have to do that in face-to-face -face we don't have to worry about. You usually will plan your course and then you'll teach your course and you'll deliver. The idea of building that extra step in the middle is very um, strategic but also allows teachers to be really intentional about their design. How do I take what I've designed and then deliver it in a meaningful way to students through this build process? So they took those and they separated those three stages. And our teachers had to learn how to do those three things separately, but also kind of it's not a 
it's not a linear, you do one, then the other, then the other. It's sometimes it's iterative. It's an iterative process. One of the other things I really valued learning from One Schoolhouse is how in a virtual environment, how consistency and predictability, it's important in the face-to-face, -face, but it's really important in the virtual environment or in the hybrid environment. Because if you think from a parent perspective or from a family perspective, I might have a student in ninth grade, I might have a student in sixth grade, and I have a lower school student, or I might have three upper school students. If they're going from class to class and it looks different or there's different policies or or you have to use this tool here or that tool here that actually increases friction they're like I think in English I was supposed to submit it here but in math I was supposed to do it this way and all of that translates in a virtual environment to friction against the teacher it affects the student-teacher relationship in a way that doesn't happen in a face-to-face -face environment so I'd say those are two things from the one schoolhouse training that I think really helped set kind of the mindset for our teachers this summer so one of the big debates has been synchronous versus asynchronous as folks are designing these courses. And, and we've got, it seems to me, like a particular stance on that as a school. And then you look at, for example, I was looking at Montgomery County's rollout of their curriculum, which looks to be a, a synchronous heavy model. And I'm, I'm going back to Sarah's wording, almost replicating an in-person school day online. I'd love to hear y'all talk a little bit more as parents are looking at what other schools are doing. What's the benefit to this model that we're using and defining for some folks synchronous versus asynchronous and, and how it works best online? Yeah, I was going to say the first thing for parents and families to understand is what we mean when we say synchronous and asynchronous. So synchronous learning is when your student is going to be attending, say, a Google Meet or a Zoom. It's going to happen live in real time and students are responding in that real time. And asynchronous is when we are providing content which is to be done on the student's own time. So they're not going to be face-to-face -face with their teacher. They're likely not going to be in communication with their classmates. They're going to be working through information at their own pace. And even as I define these, I'm thinking to myself, if I didn't have the experience and the knowledge that I have, I might think, well, but if we're face-to-face, -face, is that not the same as being in a classroom? And it is absolutely 100% not the same. There's a lot of psychology behind it. I know that we've all read those articles about Zoom burnout, the distractions that a student has online, how it can be tiring psychologically because we're not used to interacting with people via video. In the years of virtual teaching, the research shows that people do not learn as well in a synchronous session online. Those sessions should really be saved for an emotional connection. You know, you need to see your teacher, you need to interact with your other students. Reinforce forcing information that they've learned through asynchronous activities and also for that Q&A session, a, a chance to get to meet with your teacher in a real-time situation where you can get your questions answered verbally verbal processor here. So I, I do like to speak to people that helps me. But in order for synchronous to do its job to really benefit our students, we need them to be interacting with that material in that asynchronous fashion that allows them to go through a lesson at their own pace. We've been working very hard this summer on teaching our faculty the best way to present that asynchronous information so that it is more in line with how we do it in the classroom, right? We want to give them context. We want to give them new information. We want to give them opportunities to interact, synthesize, practice, process it. And once they've done that, now they're prepared to meet synchronously and work and talk with their teacher and their other students. 
And a particular developmental lens on that for lower schoolers has been the challenge. We always talk about the whole child, but I like to talk about full body. Lower school students learn with their full bodies. They're not not used to and really not built to learn in this kind of environment, right? In general, their experience with this kind of environment is passive. I'm watching TV, I'm watching a video. Even if I'm playing a video game, it's different. And in this situation, we are more than ever enlisting parents as partners in learning. They always needed to be our partners in learning as far as communication went. But now we are really working a three-way team, teacher, child, and family. And so lower school teachers have also been really thinking about how does that work, especially synchronously. How do we schedule that to make that work for families? What is the asynchronous expectation and how will they help their children structure their day? Young children thrive on routine and structure. So all of these additional kind of developmental considerations have been part of what lower school teachers are also putting in their design of their courses. So Bella, walk us through what that might look like in a third grade classroom. How do you get that full body experience and also be online? So there's a couple things. We've been starting to talk to parents about this idea of chunking, right? When we're in the classroom, we don't sit for an hour at a time. And even if we did, it would not be a focused one-to-one relationship, right? One child and me learning for one hour. They're learning in groups or learning in social groups. They're distracted sometimes and that's okay. That's kind of how they process. So first of all, helping parents understand that the expectation has to be chunked. There should be productive struggle, but then there should also be breaks and the breaks have to be built in. And so that's one thing. Having teachers' expectations of what does synchronous time look like? Can a child stand while they are doing their synchronous time with you? Yes. Can they move about a little bit? Yes. How can we balance the need for attention versus the idea that some kids attend through movement? So what it looks like, Rodney, is we're about to see (laughs) the improvements that we have made and how they work. One thing that we know is we're going to start one way and then we're going to flex to what students and families need because, again, it's a three-way partnership and we have to be the ones that provide that kind of flexibility that works best. Mm. So let's call out the the elephant in the room of this part of our conversation, right, which is if I'm a parent and I'm listening to this, I'm thinking I'm supposed to do that and I've got to do my own (laughs) work online. And that's whether I have a kindergartner or a senior, right? How am I going to keep this kid motivated, moving on task and also do my task? What advice or, or direction do you have for parents about how best to partner and also do what they need to do? in in the midst of this. I think that's another reason of replicating a school day is not only not good for children, but it's also not good for families. That is just not going to work for a multitude of reasons. So what can we do? We can make sure that we provide a skeletal schedule that will really help you anticipate when they are the times of highest need. Now that will depend. If you have a kindergartner, that might be the entire time. And there is, to be honest, no way for us to help change that fact. That's a fact of development. But I can say that as we provide this support for families, on the flip side, as Russia said, I think we're gonna end up with a stronger family school partnership because they've had this chance to become student teachers in a way that is instructive. So trying to take the long view, the more support we provide now, the better we can continue with what we intend to do in person. So I think that 
the parents, maybe not at the same level perhaps as they would in a lower school student, but I would say in a different way, they need to still be connected to the upper school or middle school. We find that parents that are involved in their students' lives from an academic perspective, those students do better in school. We're talking about just checking in. How are you doing? Uh, did you submit? Knowing what the schedule that, that a student has. Oh, you have A and B synchronous today. How was your A class? How was your B class? You had a paper due on Friday. Those are things that we need our parents to be able to do, whether it's virtual or not. In the virtual environment, it really helps us that because we're not physically there with the student, if a parent sees something or starts seeing signs of a student not engaging or, or needs some support in, in, in something or other, that they reach out to us right away. The earlier we find out about it, the better. So I would say that partnership is, is, is going to need to be even stronger than it was when it was face-to-face. And I will add that when we looked at moving to the platforms that we're using this coming fall, we're going to use Google Classroom as our virtual classroom, PK3 through 12th grade, and the conversations about where will parents and students expect to be seeing their information. We really wanted to give parents as much of a view into what their student is doing as is possible and really being open about giving you the information that you need to keep tabs on your student and to to build that connection. It's making me want to shift and think about, Bella, you ended with that in-person idea. And there are some schools who are going to attempt to go back in person probably as early as September 1, right, or before that. And part of what went into our decision was feeling like even in person now is going to be different in a way that may impede the learning. Could y'all talk about how some of these protective measures that we absolutely need to take, right? The mask wearing, the social distancing, that when you add that into an in-person school day, what can that do for the learning environment? How does the added measures really negatively impact the learning environment and the, the psychology for the students and teachers around this? Well, I think, I think you said it, right? It, it could have potentially a negative impact on the classroom. I actually, in my AP English language class, I always have my students sitting in pods, right? They are sitting in groups of five because they're constantly collaborating, they're constantly working together, and that will have to shift. We'll have to think of different ways of doing that. Kids won't be able to come together and just see somebody and say, oh my God, and then just give you a hug. And I mean, that's human nature. That's how we normally are. And we're, we're having as a school, like many other schools are having to figure out how do we actually tell kids not to act on their nature, at least for a specific time. I really have a lot of faith in that we will be able to figure ways out to still have active learning, still engaging. One of our major strengths is our social emotional learning. I mean, you can get math in any school. I'm the academic dean. I think academics is the most important thing, but really I also realize parents don't just choose our school because of our math program or our English program or, or the way we teach. Um, science. They choose our school because we know how to build connections with students. When I started three years ago and I went through orientation and we did those interviews, Sarah, if you can remember with those kids, the one thing that just kept going over and over and over again was how our students are connected to the teachers and how they love their teachers and how the teachers are so caring about students. And so I think if we hadn't had that base and hadn't had that foundation, that negative effect would have been, I think, maybe a lot worse. But because we're a small community and we know our students and our foundation is that connection, I don't think is going to impact it in such a negative way as maybe other schools or other communities or other organizations. And we'll have to figure it out. But our human connection is going to come strong and become the foundation for that, I think. 
one of the things about home-based learning, which is what's about to happen, is not only uh, do children learn in full body, but they're place-based learners. And so you're home, even though you're doing school. So how are we providing that connection that is not tenuous or fragile, but is a really strong one? Because we know that that's how young students learn best. All of us learn best with connection, but really young students need that physical connection. So now if we look forward to when we will eventually come back to this beautiful place, how will we help them make that transition, right? They're, if they're place-based learners and they haven't been in this place for almost by that time a year, that will be our new focus going forward. And what will we do for them? There are some things that are developmental. So if we're all wearing masks, it's more difficult for us to show them how to make the sounds of the English language because they can't see our lips move. So what will we do? Will we have to use some video in, in any case? What we do to, to help them think more than be impulsively physical with each other, right? Which is a really difficult thing for young children to do. And so what does that require? All of that requires some really honest and intentionally designed lessons around safety. And, and children really understand these specific things. When we do fire drills, we explain what is a drill and why do we do it? And why is this not an emergency, but we're pretending it is. So I think of once we decide when that in-person learning will begin, lower school teachers will pivot to redesigning what they do best, but with a particular emphasis on how to help transition kids back into this place learning. So this is sounding like I'm now sitting in the perspective of a teacher, right, where people may make the assumption that teaching online must be easier than teaching in person, right? And, you're, and you're, your class is meeting less times a week or for less amount of time in this sort of in-person version because you've got the asynchronous pieces. So th this must be a piece of cake. Is that so? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I think that one of the common misconceptions is because maybe you're you're getting that less synchronous time, but truly a good virtual program, a strong program is more structured and planned out than what we do in the classroom. And for the reasons that Russia mentioned earlier, it is very difficult to pivot from in-person to online because, for example, I'm working with some teachers right now on trying to figure out icebreakers. And they have an icebreaker where everyone has a clipboard and they run around the room and find other students who match them. And now it's like, well, how do I translate that into online? The translation from in-person to online takes far more work than to go from online to in-person. And that's because when you're online, everything needs to be planned out. You have to plan the groups. You have to know where your students are going to be. You have to have contingencies in place, right? We know that there are time limits for student attention online. MBE tells us this. Research for being virtual tells us this. So we need to make use of all of those minutes the best we can. And I think that when we move to a virtual place, you really have to pare it down to what are the concepts students must know? What are the skills they must gain in order to be successful as they continue on with their learning? And trying to hone in on that and do it the best you can in these smaller chunks that we have them for means that that planning has to be so much stronger and you really need to put far more time into sourcing that material because you're not just able to stand in front of them in a classroom and talk or move around or pivot and show them something. All of that has to be packaged and put together and that takes time but it makes it strong too. I, I would also add to that that 
one of the things that's very different in the virtual than it is in the face-to-face -face that does take a little bit more time is feedback. And we know that when you look at research, feedback is one of the best ways to increase student achievement. In their face-to-face -face environment, if a student submits an essay on Monday, they're checking in with me, they're seeing me throughout the week. I can take a little bit of extra time to really read through the essay and put comments on that and then maybe give it to them next Monday. But in the virtual environment, we don't take weeks to respond to students. If a student you know, is in this discussion group and responds and I take a week to respond to them, they're not connecting with me on a daily basis as they would in a traditional classroom. Feedback now, it's, it's timely and specific. It's hours and days, right? Um, and that takes time to be able to do that to all students in a meaningful way. And then remember when I talked about in the very beginning about that extra build step that's in virtual planning, you know, you have your design, you have your build and you have your delivery. That build step is an extra step that we have to be very intentional. What tools am I gonna do? How I'm going to engage students? How I'm going to build and provide voice choice and differentiation and different pathways? Does everybody have to read an article to be able to learn about mind civilization? I might say, well, no, you can read or you have a choice to read or watch a video. Well, designing that or building that takes time. Virtual learning, if not triple it, it's at least double the amount of time for planning um, than before. Mm -hmm. For young students, as much of our learning is process as it is product. And so our feedback is both structured to product, but really it's focused on structured on process, right? Feedback on process. And a lot of that is done in the moment. A lot of that is done incidentally, it seems to students. For example, as we're walking to lunch, we're walking to PE and we can have those one-on-one -on -one times that are very important. So now we don't have those anymore. How are we filling those gaps and making sure that students get individual feedback on process made more difficult by the fact that we don't get to see the process in some cases, families are seeing process. So it comes back again to helping families know that paying attention to that piece is just as important as a product that they will make for me to eventually see. And so we're, we really are thinking about process of learning as well. Mm. And I'm glad you brought that phrase, the process of learning, because I'm going back to Sarah's term MBE. And I'm wondering, Sarah, can you define MBE for us and talk about what our teachers have already learned? We've done a lot of training in MBE, how that's informing this virtual platform. So MBE is mind brain education. And we have been doing training on this for the last two years. And it is heavily research-based. And it looks at the way in which the brain works when we're learning. Everything that we've learned in MBE is applicable to virtual learning. I think that it's even more important because you have to be so intentional in online learning. So we know that there is no learning without a connection and a connection. And um, so coming back to my point about how do we do that? How do we connect with our students in a way that feels visceral and yet isn't, right? It's removed, it's remote. And I prefer distance learning. I don't like to call it remote learning. That seems like I'm separated in a way that I don't intend to be. So how do we do that? If we know that all learning happens through connection, then what will we do to design around that? If we know that feedback is very important in order for you to not only code what you've learned, but to be able to adjust your thinking or your schema in a way that helps you encode better, right? How will we know what you're learning if 
we don't have some formative assessment around your process of learning, right? Where are you if I'm trying to get you here or you're trying to get here? Where are you on that path? These are all things that we have taken as the operationalizing of MBE research because that's the trick. We know the science of learning, it's the science of teaching that we're really working on. And I think as a follow-up, one thing that I would really want for parents to understand, and we've learned this through MBE, is that your student learns best when the tools that they're using are not something that they have to think about using anymore. So at the start of virtual learning, you may find that your students are spending some time learning how to use Google Classroom. They're going to be learning how to use some of this educational technology because they need to learn that first before it can become an automatic process for them. That frees up that brain space to really concentrate on the new information that's coming in. So students will have to get comfortable with learning online. So you may see that being a part and a piece of the learning in these first few weeks of school. And, and that is entirely necessary to prepare them to best learn throughout the rest of the first semester and, and beyond. I would actually add that I actually think that MBE and some of the training we've done this summer and some of the things we've learned from the spring are very much aligned. So in MBE, we learned that one of the best ways to design our courses or to design our teaching is rather than it be content-based, it be outcome-based. So what I mean by that is that when I look at my course and my whole year, I need to plan backwards from the outcome. What do I want students to know to be able to understand and to be able to do at the end of this course. And I make those decisions first based on writing master competencies or outcome-based and then design my instruction backwards. Okay, so if I want my student to be able to do X, Y, Z, how do I then design what units of learning and what order does that unit of learning need to be in? How do I build that unit of learning so that I'm able to then accomplish those outcomes? I mean, then how do I build assessment to be able to do that? And so that's something that I think is incredibly aligned between MBE and and what we've learned and been trained on this summer. I know I'm really excited about it because it leads us to do this curriculum mapping that we've been wanting to do for such a long time and now we're actually doing it. One of the other things I think MBE also emphasizes, I would say, is hands-on learning. So how do you do that in a virtual environment? Believe it or not, and this is really interesting, data-driven decisions are really important. And so last year we put out surveys to both parents and students. And I know parents are, you know, I'm a parent and, and when I see my child in front of a computer talking to a teacher, in my mind, they're learning, right? doesn't matter where they're actually learn. like to me as a parent I'm looking on oh they're in front of the teacher they're learning okay that's good but the feedback that we got from our students was that they were incredibly burned out having four zooms in one day the sweet spot from that data was two to three so we designed our schedule to be able to have no more than three zoom sessions in a day and then two different times for a teacher to check in with a student every week and I think that's kind of the sweet spot and, and based on our data that we got from our students I would say that that would be aligned with what they felt was was worked best for them as far as hands-on learning I know for example a lot of our parents have asked about our science how are we going to do our science online? And so one of the things that our science department was working on was finding a, a tool that will allow students to be able to still get engaged in lab investigations online. And, and we actually have a new teacher whom we hired who used to work for Carolina Biological. They used to actually create physics kits and chemistry kits for the classroom. And so when it came to us 
looking for the solution for our science classrooms, his voice was, was really instrumental. And we found a tool called Lobster, and we found that their tool is, is different than others because it really mimics a real lab experience. So for example, if students don't put on their goggles, they can't access the titration tool. So it, it really tries to mimic the, the way that it would happen in the classroom. It's, it's not gonna be like the classroom, but we're trying to mimic that as much as possible to give them that learning that, that they need and crave. So we've dispelled a lot of myths about virtual learning in this conversation, right? That it's not less rigorous for the teacher or the student. Um, they won't suffer from not getting as far as they would have if they were in person, right? The learning isn't stopping and at the same time, more time online does not equal more things learned. These are really important things for folks to wrap their minds around as we do virtual learning in such an intentional way. And, and I heard you, Russia, also talk about hands-on and inquiry-based, and I'm thinking about that really is the pillar of a Sandy Spring Friends education. It's experiential, it's progressive, it's hands-on, it's inquiry-based, it's based around connection with the teacher in real time. And so how will we see those things we love and the reasons we chose SSFS, how are they gonna appear online? That is of particular concern to us because the amount of um, time we're asking students to engage with education technology, educational technology, is very different than what our school day looks like. We, so how are we making sure that we get that piece, that really important pillar, both of Sandy Spring and early childhood and elementary education in general? So what are we doing? We, it actually allows us, I want to speak to science for a moment since uh, Russia explained about upper school, is uh, we have been transitioning to a curriculum based around the next generation science standards for a couple years in lower school and this is allowing us to accelerate it. So we've paid a particular focus on science uh, curriculum this summer and why is that important um, to this question is those standards are based on phenomenon based learning so things that are observable in the natural if we're talking about science and in the human made world if we're talking about engineering and so to design lessons around phenomena has really helped teachers understand how will they use their home environment to interact in ways that allow them to investigate in in real ways as opposed to I'm trying to lead you to a conclusion type of way. Another thing we're doing is providing materials so particular to math. Students are concrete learners for most of lower schoolers and they require manipulatable objects in order to learn math concepts. So we're providing those. We're thinking of lots of ways uh, for them to use things that they have in their home environment. So this whole idea of reuse and recycle really becomes part of the learning environment, but that is now translated to home as opposed to being really isolated to school. So we're trying to think of all of those ways that we make sure that our lower schoolers are not only off screen, but are engaged in learning that is authentic and allows them to really apply their native curiosity in ways that enrich their experience. Thank you. So thinking about all that we've talked about in this conversation centered around virtual learning and, and the emotion around the decision to go to virtual learning was sort of like, a, oh man, <laughs> right, we're going to miss so much of the in-person. And, and yet what I'm hearing and walking away from myself from this conversation is it's, uh, it's almost like an, oh, wow, it's going to be different, but it's going to be just as good. And it's going to enhance and improve some of the ways that we do things, even when we are back in person. And so I'd love to close this conversation with what are the awesome opportunities that going virtual will afford us? How are we going to be better 
because of the intentional investment in this virtual learning period and the professional development that we're giving our teachers now. From the ed tech perspective, I think Russia said, you know, it, it advanced things so quickly. And one thing that was an intent of my own in preparing the school for this was that I didn't want to bring in any piece of technology that I didn't think would also enhance a face-to-face -face classroom. So our faculty's time is, is precious, and I didn't want for them to spend time learning anything that would only be useful in a virtual environment. So many of the tools that we're using are things that we will see our faculty continue to use when we're back in person. And for me, it has been the silver lining of this entire situation is that, as Russia said, in normal circumstances, this takes time. You know, people are not nearly as motivated to set everything down and like listen to me talk for an hour about a technology. But, but this situation has really made people desire to push themselves and move forward in this way. And every tool that we're introducing is something that will enhance their classrooms for years to come. So I really think that it's been hard, but, but it will benefit us in the future. I'm going to piggyback off of what Sarah has spoken about. I'm excited for some of the, the things that have happened because of COVID, that we're able to really move our school forward strategically. The training that teachers are engaged in and backwards planning um, is something that works. We need it for virtual, but absolutely is needed for face-to-face -face and will really help us when we're designing our assessments backwards from our outcomes. Being able to provide voice, choice, differentiation pathways, those are things that work virtually, but absolutely should be working in a face-to-face -face environment. And it's a growth mindset. We're all learning together and reflecting and kind of trying to be reflective practitioners. Okay, we tried this, didn't work. Why didn't it work? Let's try something else and move on with that. And so those are things that I think will benefit our students. I would say even from a learning support perspective, reflecting on the spring experiences, and we have great support for our students, but it allowed us to look at our systems and say, where are their gaps, right? And so one of the things that we learned right away, and it's going to happen during opening meetings with teachers, is we are going to really be intentional on training teachers on our supports, our tier one, tier two, tier three supports, how to read an accommodation plan, some of the language of accommodation plan that might have been before, something that might have been mysterious to teachers. We're going to be intentional in that process with teachers and, and work with them a lot more. And that will benefit us when we come back face-to-face, -face, hopefully very soon. Awesome. Well, was there anything that you wanted to add into this conversation that we just didn't find the space for? I want to make sure that we have thoroughly picked your brains on this. I'm hoping that for all the adults in this community, whether they're parents or teachers, we're going to come out stronger as Russia and Sarah have already explained the ways in which we can do that. And I think that's going to be very important because young learners are not necessarily going to come back stronger in the one way that socialized schooling needs. So they're going to need us to be stronger to help them kind of recover the idea of what it means to be a learner amongst other learners. I think that's a, it's a win-win for us uh, if we get families and teachers um, behind that. I would also just moving forward really implore families to reach out you know, this has been stated, I think, across, but, you know, reach out when something isn't working, when, when you're seeing something with your student, when you don't understand why something is being done, when, you know, it's okay, you can email me and request your password again, I will give that to you a hundred times over and reset it. Um, 
I accept wine and chocolate and payment. No, I'm joking. But just that, as Bella said, this partnership is really important to us. And we can't give families what they need unless we know what's happening for them at home. Wonderful. Well, thank you for a great conversation. It sounds like y'all have a lot of things to do. So So I won't keep you any longer, but um, really enlightened and impassioned by this conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the New Stories podcast. Join us next time as we kick off the 2020-2021 school year. See you then.